You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Flowered Path. On this episode, I'll be interviewing author Philip Campbell about Padre Pio and his book Wounds of Love, the story of St. Padre Pio. This is not the first episode I've done regarding Padre Pio, and I'm sure it won't be the last. There are just too many great stories about this saint. We've barely scratched the surface. Before we get going, I want to thank patrons of The Flowered Path, Patrons and donations help me continue to make The Flower Path and bring you more content. All patrons get the regular episodes of The Flower Path ad-free, often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid Tier patrons also get shout-outs on the show, and Orchid Tier patrons get monthly merch mailings. To check out all of the patron options and benefits, and to help me continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash the flowered path. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at theflowerpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says donate. Before Philip Campbell, let's check the news. On June 9, 2022, a Eucharistic miracle occurred at the chapel of the El Espinal community near San Juan, Honduras. Jose Elmer Benitez Muchado had arrived before anyone else that Thursday. As an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, he was preparing to distribute previously consecrated hosts at a liturgy of the Word. When Benitez opened the tabernacle, he found the corporal, the sacred linen cloth placed under and over the ciborium, 
seemed to be stained with human blood. He proceeded to distribute communion and, at the close of the service, asked if anyone had seen or knew of water leaks in the church. When those in attendance replied that they knew of no leaks, Benitez showed them the corporal. The following day, the corporal was collected by Father Marvin Sotelo and placed in a hermetically sealed plastic bag. It was given to the loca bishop, Walter Guillen Soto, two days later. A skeptic, Bishop Guillen, held onto the cloth for three months before he decided to have tests done, first at a local medical center and eventually at DISA Test Toxicological Center, where professionals in forensics and analytical toxicology would analyze the cloth. The results revealed the stains were human blood. The blood type was AB and RH positive, matching the blood found on the Shroud of Turin, the Eucharistic Miracle of Lanciano, Italy, and other Eucharistic miracles. The blood stain, though it had contact with humid air, shows no deterioration or fungus. The scientists also noted that it did not dry properly. Bishop Guillen has now recognized this event as a Eucharistic miracle. However, the evidence and notarized testimony of the witnesses were sent to the Vatican for further review. Thirteen-year-old Nina Ruiz Abad died in the hospital on August 16, 1993, after suffering a heart attack at school. She had been diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when she was just 10 years old. The young Filipino girl was remembered as having been devoted to the Eucharist as well as distributing rosaries, Bibles, holy images, and other religious items. She always wore white with a rosary around her neck. Abad was born on October 31, 1979, and baptized on March 15, 1980. She is remembered as a girl who loved to pray and who always wore the rosary. It is unusual that one so young was as devoted to evangelization as she was. On July 19, 2023, the Catholic Bishops' Conference of the Philippines announced that the cause for canonization of Nina Ruiz Abad had been opened. Bishop Mayugba of the Philippines was quoted by Rappler.com about Abad saying, Nina's life was a prayerful life, full of reverence, worship, and an intimate relationship with God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So far, only two Filipino saints have been canonized, St. Lorenzo Ruiz and St. Pedro Calungsad. Both were martyred in the 17th century. Philip Campbell holds a BA in European History from Ave Maria University and a license in secondary education from Madonna University. He teaches history and economics for homeschool connections. Mr. Campbell is the author of the Story of Civilization series from TAN Books, Heroes and Heretics of the Reformation, also from TAN, and has self-published several works through his publishing company, Cruacon Hill Press. His writings have also appeared in such publications as the St. Austin Review and the Distributist Review. He is a regular speaker at homeschool conferences around the United States. Mr. Campbell resides in southern Michigan. How are you doing tonight, Philip Campbell? 
I'm doing awesome. I'm very happy to be here. And I think this is my first PM podcast I've done this late. We're at 9 PM in real time here. So this is cool. I'm, I've got my second wind and I'm ready to talk about Padre Pio. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to talk about your book, Wounds of Love, the story of Padre Pio. Before we get into that, I have a, it's, it's a little confession to make. So okay, when the publisher sent me the book and I turned it over on the back cover and I said it said suitable for ages 10 and up, I kind of went, oh, really? <laughs> but then I started reading it. Yeah. And I have to say, it is suitable for ages 10 and up, meaning it's adults can read it too. And yeah. it's, it's very well written. You did a great job with it. So Thank you. I didn't feel like I was reading something that was talking down to me or to, to the reader. So yeah. you did an excellent job with that. Oh, good. You've done two books for tan books for young adults. Wounds yeah. of Love and Matron of Paris, which is the story of St. Genevieve. Right. Do you think there's a specific need to introduce young people to the saints? Yeah, I think the saints are how young people see the faith lived out in a heroic way. They're what young people encounter to see what it means to to really embrace the faith with one's whole heart. So there's lots of young adult books on the saints. But what I noticed was that a lot of them that I was reading were written a long time ago. Like in the Catholic publishing world, it's very common to see lots of reprints of saint books from the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. which are fine books. But they obviously don't take into account saints that have been canonized or beatified in the last 50 years, like Padre Pio. Or maybe they're written to appeal to a different sort of mindset. I should say the the standards and the what the public liked to read in 1945 was different from what entertains you know kids today. Absolutely. So sometimes kids today, when they're reading these old saint books, they're, you know they're still they still hold up well. But sometimes I think they could be a little more more exciting or delve into a lot more of the struggles that the saints faced. So I brought this idea to Tan and said, I think we should kind of do some new additions to this genre. It seemed like Padre Pio was a great starting point because he's clearly one of the most popular modern saints. I mean, probably one of the most, I, I think you can go to any any Catholic church in the world and people will recognize Padre Pio's face uh, no matter where they're at. So mm -hmm. I thought this was a good place to start. And we're all very happy with how the book came out. So that was why I wanted to to address it to young people. I'm also mainly known as a children's author because my story of civilization books are elementary age. And so we put 10 and up because we didn't want people uh, grabbing it, kind of thinking, oh, this is for fourth graders or something, and then find out like, oh, there's there's some scary uh, demonic uh, you know, it attacks in here. And it kind of deals with themes of of suffering and persecution. And so, but you're right. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I wrote it to be at least suitable for 10 and up, but I really wanted adults to be able to engage with this too. And from what I'm hearing, it's been successful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the worry for me, you know, with young adult fiction is, am I going to be bored, you know, yeah. reading it? And I absolutely wasn't. And I learned stuff along the way too. So excellent. Cool. You kind of addressed why Padre Pio. I'm going to go ahead and say that number one most requested saint on the podcast. And you note this in your introduction that there's almost too much information on Padre Pio, too many wonderful stories. It's the same it problem I had in attempting to cover him on the podcast. It's just yeah. there's so much. Where do you begin and what stories do you tell? So how did you choose? 
Yeah, there was so much con- because you know there's thousands of people who are still alive that knew Padre Pio. You know, so on the one hand, you have like his official biographies and the official history. But then there's like, when you start digging to Padre Pio history, there's like thousands of anecdotes going around where you'll have people saying like, oh, my uncle knew Padre Pio and he, he did this and, you know, various stories like that. And some of them were wonderful stories and there was just so much. So I basically took one of his official biographies from around the time when he was canonized that was published by his order called Padre Pio the Wonder Worker which gave a good, kind of like a good synopsis of his life. It touched on all aspects of his ministry. It touched on his mysticism, the hospital, his miracles, his spirituality. And I kind of went through these various collections of stories, and I called out the ones that I thought really exemplified Padre Pio's character that would help me from a narrative perspective as a storyteller to tell a story about this man and help the reader get to know him. So that's why I even had to put, like, in the introduction, it's almost like a disclaimer, like, your favorite Padre Pio story might not be in here, because I could only fit so many, you know. And I really wanted to have time to dig into his spirituality, his, his, you know, so I didn't want to clutter the whole book with just miracle stories. And, you know, I really wanted to situate them in the life of this person and make him, you know, come across as a real individual with real challenges that he faced, struggles. I think uh, I think in retrospect, it came together very well. But yeah, so I had to basically choose the stories from his life that I felt would exemplify what he was about. Is it easier to do this in historical fiction versus a straight biography? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I wanted to do historical fiction before I even settled on Padre Pio. Like when I first came to Tan with the idea, I just said we should do some saints in this genre. And then I settled on Padre Pio, but in retrospect, Padre Pio's life lent itself very well to this sort of writing. If this was a straight biography, this book would have to be six times as long. Sure. And I wouldn't have been able to present it as a narrative. I mean, at the end of the day, I wanted to not just educate the reader about Padre Pio's life, but I wanted to tell a story, you know, that had a beginning, a climax and an end Mm -hmm. that was a narrative. I wish they would have let me make the Padre Pio movie or, or give him my book, you know, for the, for the script instead. You know, I didn't see the movie. We're going to talk about it later, but yeah. I didn't see the movie, but I think my book is like a better adaption. Of- I would have much preferred your book. I read your book around the same time I watched the movie. I would have much preferred your book be made into the Yeah, movie. you know, it was kind of a windfall for me, though, because the movie came out at the same time the book came out, and I didn't even know that they were making a movie. And as negative reviews about the movie started leaking out i was i was right there to be like if you want a good story padre pio there you go my book but you know i wanted to acquaint readers with padre pio but ultimately like i said i wanted to tell a story i wanted to tell a story about about suffering and about mysticism and closeness to god and god in the midst of life's challenges And I wanted to use Padre Pio's life as the vehicle for telling that story because it exemplified it so well. And so I just simply couldn't do that if I was doing a biographical format. One of the things I try to get across in this podcast regarding the saints is because often these stories can make them into sort of, you know, folk heroes like like Paul Bunyan or something, you know, these these larger than life people. But these were people. These were mortal people. They have Mm -hmm. what the Vatican terms as heroic virtue. 
Yeah. But they were mortal people, and they did this through, again, heroic virtue, but but they were humans. They were mortals. They, they weren't anything different than us other than they kind of kept themselves in check, and they did the right things, right. and they persevered in being righteous. But they were just regular people, and I think that comes across in your book. I think it's that's a good message. Yeah, I think so too, and that was very deliberate because— like I said earlier, when I was perusing these older saint biographies, I found that though they were very wholesome and you know well-written, they often erred on the side of making the saints too aloof or mm-hmm. too, like, too perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. They didn't get into the nitty-gritty of the saint's life. And I think that when you're telling the life of a saint, there's two extremes you want to avoid. One is what I just mentioned, to make them seem so other- that they're not relatable, mm-hmm. you know? And the other extreme is simply the opposite, which is to be like, oh, they're just like you and me. He's mm-hmm. actually a slob, just like <laughs> me, you know? And to where you're just not impressed by him anymore, right. you know? Right. And I've seen this in Hollywood and in, in kind of mainstream depictions of Catholic heroes where they try to make them so regular that you're like, oh, he's just, you know, right. he's yeah. just me. You know? <laughs> yeah. So basically you want a balance where you can empathize with the struggles of the saint uh, and empathize with the saint's humanity. But in the saint's heroic virtue, you still are presented with a ideal that is greater than the average and that we can strive for. So that's the balance I was trying to walk here with Padre Pio to clearly draw the reader into identifying with his struggles and his humanity and the the same sorts of things that we struggle with, but to still be very impressed with him, to still recognize his sanctity and recognize the presence of grace and heroic virtue and the difference it makes. I think we probably should have done this at the beginning, but having, you know, read your book and before that been familiar with Padre Pio through, you know, other writings and so forth, I think I assume that everybody knows who he is. Also being Catholic, I I just, you know, like you said, every, (laughs) every Catholic tends to know who he is. But maybe for people who don't know, we should just talk a little bit about where he was born. And Padre Pio, of course, wasn't his birth name. That's the name he took after becoming a Capuchin friar and then a priest friar. Right. So when and where was he born? What was his birth name? Yeah, so Padre Pio was born in 1887 in southern Italy, down in the heel, kind of close to the heel area. His birth name was Francesco di Forgione. And uh, he came from a devout Catholic family that were of middling means. They weren't poor. They had a house in town, and they owned a farm field outside of town. And Francesco's father would walk from the town to the field. They farmed. They they kept flocks. They certainly weren't well off, though. I'd say they were at the top of the lower class <laughs> if that makes sense mm-hmm. their people were the you know were, were the lower class the laborers the farmers the poor but the Forgione family was um they were secure they had enough and they, they didn't live in poverty but they still lived in very rustic conditions compared to today uh young francesco lived in a his his room at his his parents house was basically just a cold stone room where he slept on a on a hay cot you know so it was a very very standard kind of peasant upbringing for southern italy in in those days but they always had enough when francesco wanted to study for the priesthood they were able to hire hire private tutors now his father had to go take an ex- take a job in america to pay for it 
and he was gone for several years. So they kind of skirted that that line between maybe the poor and the the middle class. But he had a he had an agricultural upbringing, and his time was divided between uh, working with his father and siblings in the fields, and also, like I said, their house was in town. You can still go into town. In Pietrocina is the town. Mm-hmm. And you can still see his house today where he grew up. So he was born in 1887. He lived until 1968. So his life spanned the last decade of the 19th century and most of the 20th century. There was an event that maybe uh, set his course in life. And it was this meeting of this friar that just kind of was walking through his town when he was a, a child. Yeah, Father Camillo was a Capuchin. The Capuchins are a, a branch of the Franciscans. And this friar was just kind of walking through the fields to Pietrocina, and he encountered Padre Pio. I guess we should still call him Francesco at this point. <laughs> uh, and young Francesco uh, encountered him and was very taken with the man. And uh, in the book, I speak about young Francesco commenting on the uh, the friar's beard and how impressive it was and that's a true story he was mm-hmm. he was impressed by the the friar's beard but also just by his way of life and the idea that these men devoted themselves entirely to god and this friar was coming to pietrelcina to beg for donations for his friary and young francesco set his mind very early on on joining the capuchins in particular and he was encouraged in this by uh, by camillo and by his parents i mean they made him think and pray about it for a while but when he had reached puberty and was still serious about it, they, they took it seriously. They nurtured this vocation. It happened at a very young age, too. I think Padre Pio was eight when he started saying that he wanted to be a Capuchin. Wow. By the time he was 11 or 12, his parents had realized that this was quite an earnest. And his father, Grazio, went away to the United States to work and send the money back home to afford to pay for the tutors. So for, he had to learn Latin. He mm. needed theological training. And so they made those sacrifices for him. And he actually entered the Capuchin novitiate at age 15 in 1903, which was quite unusual, not unprecedented. You had St. Therese of Lisieux also entered Carmel at a very young age. And if young people exhibited a call to the religious life at that age, it wasn't unheard of. They wouldn't be allowed to take vows, final vows, till they were older. Pio took his final vows at age 19 after a four-year novitiate, which is still incredibly young. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think today you might be in various stages of formation for maybe eight years, and you probably wouldn't even be admitted to that until you were 18 or 19. So for him to be admitted at 15 and then take final vows at 19, that suggests that his religious observance at that young age must have been exemplary. Mm -hmm. And this clear idea of where he wanted to go, I mean, if... (laughs) If I I took the life course that I wanted to take when I was 15, my life would be very different right now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. No, he was single-minded. That's Mm -hmm. one thing about Padre Pio is he was very single-minded in what he wanted to do with his life. One of the most striking aspects about Padre Pio are these wondrous events that surround his life, encounters with what seems to be the devil. I know there's one that's not in your book about the devil waiting for him in the confessional one time. Yeah. But these other accounts like that, and you take a few of them and, you know, pepper them throughout the book. Are they based on actual stories or did you choose things as just more symbolic of the types of encounters he experienced? Both. There's a there's a few stories in the book that are real accounts. So, for example, in the book, 
when he's a young friar in the friary, there's a story where he sees a demonic dog in the hallway mm-hmm. and he chases it out the window. That really happened. There's another story when he's young, I think he's 14, and he has a vision or a dream where he is kind of leading an army doing battle against a host of demons. That was also recounted in his letters. But then some of the other stories I just made up uh, using creative license based on the time. I mean, there's so many Padre Pio and the devil stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, another one that really happened was in the book. It talks about his family coming to visit him at a little cottage he's staying at. And when they visit him, he's like all beaten up and all the furniture is broken. Oh, yeah. And he says that he's been fighting with the devil all night. That was a true story as well. I like to pepper these little devil interludes throughout the story to kind of draw attention to the, uh, I guess, the behind the scenes sort of struggle that Padre Pio had in his spiritual life. We're very aware of the the external challenges he faced, which we'll talk about, you know, from the church or people that misunderstood him. But he had this vibrant inner life, and he was frequently tempted and assaulted by the devil behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to draw attention to like his inner struggle. And as you know, from reading the book, there's quite a bit about his inner life in the book. You know, there's quite a bit about his spirituality, his prayer life, how he perceived God. And so those scenes with the devil are, are supposed to kind of throw that into relief. Like so many of these saints, I'm thinking like St. Gemma Galgani, for instance, he has these health problems that yeah. that are with him like for most of his life. Uh, yeah. And at one point, they actually send him back from the friary to his hometown. Yeah, yeah. So he has health problems perpetually. And uh, this prevents him from living a normal life at the friary. Like he goes to the friary, but his health problems are so bad that he can't partake in normal communal life with the friary. So they say that for his rest and recuperation, he needs to go back to his family. He's not dispensed from his body. They, they tell him, like, for the best of your ability, you know, keep the Capuchin lifestyle. And so when he goes back to his family, he doesn't live in the in the family house. They own a little, like, uh, a cottage, which is more just like a kind of like a workman's shed on the family farm. And he lives out in this cottage by himself. But this was a blessing in disguise because Padre Pio was drafted into World War One when he was a young adult. I think he would have been probably about 25 or so when World War I started. And Italy at the time was a sec- completely secular state, and it had a mandatory draft of all men of military age, regardless of one's religious profession. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that Padre Pio was a Capuchin friar, he was forced to take his habit off and go put on military fatigues, and he had to go by his birth name, which he found very odd after being called Pio for... Uh, you know, for seven years, he had to report as Francesco again. And so he had to report for duty. Now, he didn't have to fight because he was a, uh, a professed religious. He was allowed to serve as a medic. But his health problems actually saved him from having to go to the battlefields of World War One. He was consistently ill throughout his service. And he was he was frequently sent away from the front because he was unfit for duty until he was finally discharged. I can't remember how I think it was maybe two years in, back and forth, they finally discharged him as unfit for duty because of his poor health. But he spent much of the the second decade of the 20th century into the 1920s struggling with these health issues. He eventually kind of stabilized in his 30s, but there were times in his early youth and his 20s when he was very sick, and there was 
there's even times where it looked like he was on the verge of uh, of death. There was one time in particular we talk about in the book where he's he's trying to serve the friars, and it's clear that he's he's like very very ill. He's like shaking and white and sickly, and his superior has to command him to go to the infirmary, and they they check on him, and he's you know he's got a fever so high that he should be dead, you know. So these things did plague him throughout the formative years of his life, but the, he did kind of stabilize later, and then that seemed to not be an issue. As, but really, after he got the stigmata, his health problems seemed to have gotten a little better. Yeah, that's one of those blessings, but also, you know, he has wounds. He's got wounds for most of his life. Mm-hmm. They cause him a great deal of pain. Yeah. He's embarrassed of them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to show them off. Uh, he sort of, I guess people are interested, but it causes a great controversy for him in the church. Yeah, and he is so, I mean, like anyone who had the stigmata, he was extremely humble and modest about, and secretive about it, mm-hmm. you know? There's a story in the book, and it's it's true story. You know, he was accused of faking his stigmata. Yeah. He was accused of, like, pouring acid on his hands even though the doctor said that there was no, like, that the the wounds on his hands did not evidence any, you know, signs of an acid burn. But I think the easiest argument aside that this was not fake was when Padre Pio had to have a hernia operation to, you know, to, to repair a hernia, he knew that if they put him under, if they, if they knocked him out, he knew that the doctors and the attendants wouldn't be able to resist their curiosity and that they would look at his stigmata. And he was under obedience to not show it to anyone, and he didn't want to show it to anyone, so he asked to have the hernia operation without anesthesia. Wow. And, I mean, a hernia, that's what they cut your abdomen open and put your intestine back in its lining or something. So I woke up in the middle of mine. Yeah. And it was not pleasant. Yeah, I can't imagine going through the whole thing, and they put me right back under. Yeah, but I woke well, he, up he, in the middle he, of it. He couldn't yeah. even go through the whole thing. He uh, he passed out from sheer pain. I can imagine. And then, true to his suspicion, they did look at his stigmata once he passed out, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he knew because he's Padre Pio. As soon as he woke up, he said, "God forgive you for what you did," because uh, he knew that they looked at it. So, I mean, that's not the actions of a man that was faking his stigmata. You know, right. you know, I, I don't care how tough you think you are. You know, like. If you're faking it, you're not going to go for hernia operation with no anesthesia voluntarily. Right. So, yeah, this stigmata caused him a great—in fact, this is when his troubles really began because it was difficult to conceal, you know. I mean, he wore gloves, but it was clear that as he was hiding something on his hands. It was clear that his feet were in intense pain, and word spread around the town uh, San Giovanni Rotondo, where his friary was, that there was a stigmatist there. And he already had a reputation for sanctity, and this just increased that. And so you get word that, like, there's a saint living here with the stigmata. And and sometimes the town could seem like a zoo. You know, you look out the window of the friary, 7 o'clock in the morning, and there's a mob of people standing out there, you know, hoping they're going to see Padre Pio. Mm-hmm. And Padre Pio was held personally responsible for this. He didn't ask for any of this. But uh, his enemies made this out as if he was a an attention seeker, you know, that he was fostering this. And he really wasn't. Yeah, it caused a great deal of opposition from the church. And I think what's really interesting is, and again, you note this in the book, is he remained obedient. He takes a vow of obedience 
it's uh, obedience, chastity, and poverty. That's the three knots on the white ropes that hang from the capuchin's waist there. And he stays true to this this vow of obedience. So even when other people are saying, you know, like they're doing you wrong and, you know, like fight back, he gets upset and he says, no, like I'm, I'm going to obey the church. Well, he understood that what the church was commanding him to do was within its prerogatives to do. If you're a capuchin, your life is obedience, mm-hmm. you know. Padre Pio had a vow of a, a religious vow of obedience to his superiors and that was what his vocation was. You know, if he were to betray that, then he would be betraying his very vocation. If his superiors want to tell him you can't celebrate mass publicly, you can't hear confessions, you can't answer letters, which were all censures placed upon him, then Pio recognized the legitimacy of that. And when the mayor of San Giovanni Rotondo wanted him to, you know, wanted to fight back against the bishop and, and publish scathing articles against the bishop, Pio was angry with him. He grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, stop publishing this trash. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't want him to, to, to make it into a fight. But on the other hand, I, I get asked this question in every interview about Pio's obedience, and it's almost like people want to make Pio into... I don't know. They, he, he's a he's a model of obedience, and it's almost like they want to say, "Well, see, Pio uh, obeyed the church, so therefore, you know, we should all just shut our mouths if we hear of corruption or, or whatever problems in the church." I do think it's important to point out that the obedience of a professed Capuchin is different from the obedience of a layperson. You know. Padre Pio had a vow of obedience to the will of his superiors to where whatever they told him to do, you know, he was bound to do that. It's different from the obedience that lay people owe to the clergy. And even though Pio was very obedient, he also wasn't a doormat. And there's various stories in the book where we talk about how, like, Pio didn't like the fact that he was being persecuted, you know, mm-hmm. like he, he submitted to it, but he didn't like it. And right, he made it right. clear that he didn't agree with it. So a great story is shortly after he received the stigmata, this eminent physician, a priest named Agostino Gemelli, was the priest of the Vatican. Uh, I think he might have even been Pius XI's doctor, mm-hmm. but he was a notable priest of the Vatican. He was sent by the Secretary of State of the Vatican himself, Cardinal Mary Del Val, sent him to San Giovanni Rotundo to examine Pio's stigmata on the highest authority you know, from from the Pope, from the Secretary of State. Uh, but Pio refused to let him look at him because the priest had not brought his paperwork saying that he had the authorization. <laughs> so <laughs> he says, like, I'm here from the Vatican. And, and Pio says, like, well, show me your paperwork. And the guy says, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm Dr. Gamelli. Like, of course, I'm from. And Pio says, I'm sorry, if you don't have your paperwork, I'm not going to let you look at me. And so the guy has to go all the way back to Rome get the paperwork, come all the way back. And then once he does that, Pio says, okay, you look at me, mm-hmm. you know? So I use this story as kind of an example, or there's another one where, who is it? Uh, another priest, Father Macari, comes to interrogate Pio. This is when he's older. The Pio faced a lot of charges of impropriety. They, they accused him of doing bad things in the confessional. Mm. Father Macari, who was from the Diocese of Rome, interrogated Pio and Pio refused to give him anything more than just the bare minimum amount of information he wanted. 
So he was kind of like being obedient, but in like a way of like, I'm going to be obedient, but do the bare minimum that is required of me because I know that you have ill will Mm -hmm. and you're trying to destroy me. Or sometimes he, you know, like when he was very old, I think he, I think his sense of obedience to, to his rule, to his way of life, when he's very old, his, uh, his superior commands that every capuchin needs to have an air conditioning unit installed in their cell. Oh, yes. And Pio throws a fit about this. They, the workmen come to put the air conditioning unit in and he's indignant. He says, I did not join the capuchins for a life of ease because when he was a young man, you know, in the eight, you know, 1907, the Capuchins were like, we sleep on solid rock. There's no heat. There's no air. It's murky, you know, and, and Pio's like, this is what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for it. So he just flat out tells them this is against the Capuchin spirit. And the superior subsequently dispenses him from having to have an air conditioning unit and lets, and I say in the book, he lets him sweat in peace. <laughs> so I want listeners to understand that Pio's view of obedience was nuanced. He never was disobedient. He never disobeyed a legitimate order. He believed that we absolutely have to submit to the church's judgment and that a religious has to submit, especially to the decrees of his superiors. But Pio was not a doormat who just said, you can do whatever to me you want. He obeyed within the limits of what the law required, but he did not voluntarily, you know, he wasn't, he was not a masochist that went out voluntarily looking for opportunities for his persecutors to hurt him. These things grievously wounded him, especially because they came from the church. Right. So his obedience was real, but it was also very nuanced. And sometimes it was what we might call a foot dragging obedience, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like I'll obey, but I'm not going to make it easy. Like, oh, you forgot your paperwork back to Rome with you to get it, you know, because I, I do think that there's a danger that we view obedience as uh, that we confuse it for just, you know, allowing ourselves to be trampled on. And that wasn't the way Pio viewed it, even if he ultimately did submit to all these things. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe that's not the answer you wanted, but that's the view of him that came across from studying his life. No, that, I think that's an important distinction to make. Absolutely. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Things kind of shift, too, within the church, where sometimes he's accepted and sometimes, you know, depends on who's advising the pope and which pope it is. Sometimes, <laughs> Yes, I was very interested in that. Uh, yeah. So two popes thought Pio was a fraud and two popes thought he was a holy man. <laughs> <laughs> Pius XI and John XXIII thought Pio was a fraud. And Pius XII and Paul VI thought Pio was a holy man. So... Alternately, Pio, he gets his freedom either given back or restricted based on who is in charge. Now, the popes themselves aren't really responsible for this. In the case of Pius XI and John Twenty-Third, it was due to scathing reports mm-hmm. that Pio's uh, enemies within the church put before the pope. They called him stupid, superstitious, a grifter, a fraud, and they gave the popes bad reports of Pio. In fact, the reason Pio got his faculties taken away the first time under Pius XI was directly related to him not letting that doctor see him Mm. because the doctor was so mad. He went and got his paperwork and he came back and he examined the stigmata and he said, Pio is a complete fraud and basically accused him of starting like a schismatic movement in San Giovanni Rotondo and making himself into like a uh, like a, a miracle worker. Right. And so that report led Pius XI to support the suppression of Pio's faculties. So yeah, he, he bounced back and forth. But then when you get uh, the pontificate of Pius XII starts, these things start to lift, and then he's pretty free throughout World War II. And then John XXIII, there, there's a whole new second wave of persecution that comes after around 1958, and it, it peaks at... 1960, when he's getting investigated again, he, he has to submit to s- seven examinations, and they're accusing him of all sorts. They accuse him of embezzlement. They accuse him of sexual perversion, all sorts of things. I mean, none of it is substantiated, mm-hmm. but it was enough that they, they even were going to, during the pontificate of John the 23rd, someone wiretapped his confessional to, uh, to try to catch him <laughs> doing something. Wow. And then when they failed to turn up anything, they actually were going to send away every monk in San Giovanni. They, so they believed that, that Padre Pio was being enabled by his Capuchin brothers. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to break up the entire monastery and send them all to different friaries. But then John Twenty-Third died, and the, uh, the order was never put into effect. And the new Pope, Paul VI, had heard good things about Pio and supported Pio, and, uh, and the, the sanctions were lifted. The incident where they wiretapped the confessional, you did a good job illustrating his righteous anger at breaking yeah. the seal of confession. 
What a horrible thing for any Catholic to contemplate doing. Right? Yeah. Like that, oh. I mean, the level of evil you have to be to wiretap a confessional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just not good. Not yeah, good. and somebody uh, asked me if that was a true story, because it's in the book, and it is. He, he was in the confessional. He saw a little black object in the corner, and he took out his pen knife, and he pulled a whole wiretap out of his, his confessional and was indignant, went to his superior threw it down on the desk and what is this you know mm-hmm. the superior had no idea nobody to this day we don't know who wiretapped it wow so we talked about these wonderful stories that surround saint pio mm-hmm. do you have a favorite of any of these <laughs> well i love all of them but the world war Two one is very interesting yeah i absolutely love this yeah yeah uh, so in World War II, so of course, history lesson, everyone, Italy was not on our side in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Italy was under Mussolini during most of, you know, from, from 1922 to 1945, so uh, allied with the Germans. And in the latter part of the war, the Germans basically took over the Italian theater because Mussolini's military was too weak to hold Italy on its own, so Hitler sent the German army into Italy. And the German army was storing munitions in various places around Italy. And the Americans had some intel that San Giovanni Rotondo was being used as a German munitions depot. And so these uh, American, this American squadron received orders to bomb San Giovanni Rotondo. Now, at the outset of the war, as soon as the war broke out, Padre Pio had promised the people of San Giovanni Rotondo, that the city would be spared from the devastation of the war. But now some American bombers were set on a direct order to bomb the city. But the attempts to bomb San Giovanni Rotondo were continually met with technical difficulties. Like the planes would fly over the city and the bomb doors wouldn't open. Or sometimes the doors would open prematurely before they reached the city and the bombs would fall harmlessly into the field. Or the bombs would drop and not go off. And what was very troubling was many of the American pilots reported seeing a monk flying in the air, uh, holding his hands up like a giant monk in the sky, holding his hands up, preventing them. And the, uh, the, the captain of the squadron didn't believe this. This was General Twining. Yeah, the general actually went with the squadron to, to like make sure that they completed the mission. And these were like the there were five B-17 fortress bombers. Now, of course, the Nazis were not hiding weapons in San Giovanni Rotondo. There was no German activity. This was bad intel. Mm-hmm. Right. And so General Twining goes with these B-17s and they're approaching the target. So he's the general has heard these stories about this flying monk and yeah the general's yeah. heard these stories and he thinks it's nonsense right. and he's going to go with them personally to make sure that they carry this out mm-hmm. and so they're flying and then the general sees it too they get up to San Giovanni Rotondo and right in the sky there's a monk floating in the air holding his arms up like saying stop everybody see and they're they're talking about it on the radios they're all they're all about like do you see that do you see that wow and general twining sees it too and then as soon as they see it all the planes uh hatches automatically open 
and all the bombs drop harmlessly into the fields. Wow. And they're all yelling like, who commanded to open? I didn't command that. And they, they didn't even explode. They just kind of dropped into the thick soil and just the thunk. Mm. And then they aborted the mission. So now a lot of these men who witnessed this, these airmen were Protestants. They, you know, they weren't even Catholic. But after the war was starting to wind down, General Twining heard about this famous friar in San Giovanni Rotondo, and he decided to pay a visit to the monastery with, with some of his men. And as, as General Twining was walking up the pathway to the monastery, Padre Pio comes out with a group of friars, and, and General Twining just freezes because he recognizes Padre Pio as the monk he saw in the, the sky. And Padre Pio just says to him, so you're the one who was trying to destroy everything. Huh. <laughs> There's a famous photograph. You, you might be familiar with it. There's a photograph of Padre Pio posing with these airmen outside San Giovanni Rotondo, many of them who converted to Catholicism after witnessing this stupendous miracle. That would do it. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> That's what I love about Padre Pio is he's in the 20th century. He's in the age of nuclear bombs and television and computers, but it's like he belongs to the Middle Ages, you know? He's like he's like flying around and bilocating and yeah. right in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. And that's part of the fascination with him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A story, I don't believe it's in your book, but one of the ones I love is him just telling people to tell their guardian angel, just give them the messages, and he'll, he'll get them. <laughs> yeah. And he getting these messages. I mean, he's able to reply to them, and, and he gets the messages. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he had thousands of people, speaking of messages, like thousands and thousands of people wrote him from all over the world for spiritual advice, you know. And one of the things I point out in the book is that Padre Pio's spirituality wasn't very complicated. He was a profound mystic and a spiritual master, but his advice was very simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, the gospel is very simple, you know, if you think about it. If you read the Beatitudes, it's very straightforward stuff. <laughs> it's just... It's hard to put into practice. And so you'd get people that'd be like, oh, like my spiritual life is, uh, you know, and he'd be like, oh, okay, you go to Mass three times a week, try going five, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're praying once a day, pray three times. You know, he'd just kind of give him this very basic advice. But he had this way of cutting through all the confusion and all the distraction and getting to the heart of a matter and telling people what they needed to hear in that moment in a way that made a difference in their life. Yeah. He could be very blunt when he needed to be. Yes, but blunt uh, you know, he he was like a he was like a sniper. He just needed one one shot. Mm -hmm. But he knew right where to put it, mm -hmm. you know. As he gets more popular, there's money coming in, donations and so forth, and mm -hmm. he decides to build a hospital. Yeah, the idea of the hospital actually came much earlier. So to go back to the 19 to World War 1 even. So in World War 1, Padre Pio is drafted, right? And he has to serve as a medic. And it is during World War 1 that he discovers he has a great compassion for the suffering. He didn't serve in World War 1 long, but he served long enough that he treated he, he spent a lot of time treating dying soldiers, mm -hmm. you know. And he was trained as a medic, so he knew how to handle acute injuries. He was like a field medic, right? And what a brutal war to serve as a medic in. I mean, Oh, what a brutal war indeed. Yeah. And so he saw a lot of suffering, and he learned how to treat it. And this is what we often forget about Pio, is that he had medical training, and he had experience you know, with this sort of thing. And so 
he went back to the monastery after the war, but he never like lost this burden that he had that he developed during the war for the sick and the suffering. So he kind of carried this burden with him. Now, after he gets the stigmata, he gets uh, forbidden from doing any ministry, basically. And so everything that this priest is, he can't do. He can't preach. He can't, you know, he can't do catechism, can't hear confessions. So what's he going to do? So he, he prays about this, and he kind of comes back to this burden that he had in his heart from a decade earlier from the war. And he starts thinking, like, if I can't exercise ministry, maybe I can help the poor and the sick. And so he gets permission from his superior to build what is initially just an infirmary. There's an old, uh, I can't remember what it was. I think it might have been a, a tool shed or some sort of some sort of a place to store. You know, it was a storage building, a barn, something like that. He says, there's this abandoned building. Please let me convert it into an infirmary. And Pio does all the work himself at first. Like he's literally, because remember, he can't engage with the public. Right. So the hospital, the famous house of the relief of suffering, is born out of his attempt to just find something to do to fulfill his apostolate that doesn't break his uh, censures, mm -hmm. which mandates that he has to work alone. So he figures, he's like, I can plaster, I can paint, I can do this, you know. And so he spends days alone in this infirmary. He's able to recruit several local doctors. They work in shifts. They basically take kind of like a rotation just staffing this infirmary that's a walk-in infirmary. Peel had learned during the war the sorts of things that comfort dying and suffering people. And he was very insistent that this infirmary not be like a cold clinical place. And so he didn't want the walls painted like a clinical white. He wanted them painted in pastel colors that were welcoming. He wanted the doctors to have a certain bedside manner about them. He wanted them to minister to the hearts of these people, not just to their bodies. And so Pio took a very active role in the spirit of this hospital, and gradually people started coming to it, and donations started rolling in. Now, of course, Pio, it's such a beautiful thing about the way God worked with Pio. Even the thing he was trying to do when he was under censure and couldn't do anything else ended up being a huge success, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like anything Pio did got blessed. Eventually, it got so big that Pio had to be removed from the day-to-day -day management of it. There was hundreds of thousands of dollars and hundreds of volunteers involved in this and it spread to become a, a big hospital. And so they, they said, you know, it's not really fitting for a Capuchin with a vow of poverty who's not supposed to be associating with the public to be running this. And so Pio happily handed it over to a, a board to handle. But when they, when they opened the hospital building that is there today, it was a huge affair. There was dignitaries of the Italian government. Cardinal Lucaro from Rome was there, thousands of people. It was a huge thing. The hospital's still there to this day. And this was all born out of Pio's desire just to find some way to serve the sick and poor while he was under censure. It's a really lovely story of how God brings blessings out of our difficulties. What a legacy, right, yeah. to leave. I mean, like, how, how great is that? Yeah. He lives this life of heroic virtue right until the end. Mm -hmm. When did he die? He died on September 23rd, 1968. Just after saying Mass, he had said Mass and he'd collapsed. Is there a film of that of that last Mass? I feel like I've seen... There is a film of his last Mass. Yeah, I, th I feel like I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, now I don't know if, if his breakdown, if his collapse is on the film, but there's footage of his last uh, Mass. He's definitely but, being aided by other friars, but I don't know if he actually... You yeah, know. yeah, he's being aided by other friars, and then... 
And then at the end of the mass, he kind of collapses up on the altar and then they take him away. And then he kind of lingers on for a day and then he passes away. And there's, there's thousands of people gathered around the outside of the monastery, you know, holding candles and praying. And, but yeah, he persevered in this rate till the very end. The last thing he, he said, one of the last things he said was that he saw, he kept a, um, he kept an image of his mother above his bed mm -hmm. in his room because his mother was very formative on him. Uh, and he loved her deeply. And then as he was dying, he said, I see two mothers. They thought he was delirious. And they said, they thought he was looking at the picture and seeing double vision. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, but I believe, and uh, I think this is what most Padre Pio enthusiasts believe, is that he was seeing the Blessed Mother. Stand, you know, he was looking at the picture of his birth mother and then saw the Blessed Mother there beside her. Mm-hmm. And was waiting to go see both of his mothers. And I think that's what he meant when he said, I see two mothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But one of the most miraculous things about it is after he died, they immediately brought doctors in to examine the stigmata. Because now they could finally get to it without him stopping them. You right, know? right. And right before their eyes, while they're examining him post-mortem, the stigmata closes up and heals. Oh, I knew it, they were healed. I didn't know what happened while they were... Observing yeah, it, it was right in the post-mortem examination. They were looking at his hands and feet, and like in real time, right in front of their eyes, they closed up and left just little red spots behind. Wow. That's actually the last scene in the book, and I, lo I love that closing for the story. I just loved it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually read the last paragraph because <laughs> yeah, I really like this. Yeah. The doctor is lamenting that the, that the holes closed up, and he's saying, I just saw them while I was helping him get dressed. I don't understand. Holes like that don't simply vanish. God does as he pleases, said the Father Superior, nodding as if in deference to the mystery, light years beyond his understanding. And as he did, in the sight of all, the little red marks vanished, leaving Pio's skin fresh, uniform, as smooth as any child's on the day of his birth. I really loved that. Yeah. yeah. That, like, that's how the book closes. And I, I like that as an end, too. It's kind of like... His struggle is over. The battle's been won. You know, and in Catholic tradition, the day of our death is the day of our birth, mm -hmm. you know, our birth into new life. And so I really thought it was a fitting way to send Pio off <laughs> with oh, yeah. his yeah. closing up. When was he canonized then? He was canonized in 2002. He was not beatified until 1999. Now, he had a cultist right away. I mean, as soon as he, while he was still alive, he was being called a saint. Mm-hmm. There was a cultist immediately, but as I said, there was a considerable amount of accusations against him. Right until he died, people were still accusing him of financial mismanagement and things like that. So it took a little while for all the documentation to be sorted out to kind of like clear his name that nothing amiss had happened. Mm -hmm. And he was beatified in 1999 by John Paul II. And then once that happened, it went pretty quick and he was canonized in 2002. Well, it's definitely not for kids. You already said you didn't see the Padre Pio film. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. No, I did not. You know, I was real excited about it uh, when I first heard about it. I was happy to hear about Shia's conversion, which mm -hmm. I'm still happy about. Sure. Um, yeah. I can't imagine uh, Shia living in Capuchin Friary uh, where Padre Pio lived and immersing himself for nine months in this man's life and then having to enter into that spirituality I can't see how you wouldn't be converted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The movie ended up being a disappointment. I did not hear it, but I, I did not see it. You saw it. You said it was kind of weird and smutty in certain parts. 
there's a, a scene that's it's completely unnecessary. It's a gratuitous a, nudity. Yeah, it's just it was just crowbarred in there, I guess, because they think yeah. you need that in modern movies. Completely unnecessary. The stories there there's sort of two stories going on, one with what's happening in the town politically and then the other with Padre Pio, and it seemed to be really more about the political stuff in the town. I just thought it, it did not do him justice as, at all as a saint, and, and to have that scene in there, which is, I mean, it's if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't, I wasn't paying that much attention to it, honestly. I'm, I'm not interested in that sort of thing. If I remember correctly, it had something to do with a, a picture of the, the Blessed Mother and this nude woman and stuff. It was just completely unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, th- this... Uh... I think from what I gather, I think this director didn't understand the... From what I gathered, the message of the movie was that Padre Pio was too self-immersed in his spiritual life and needed to be paying more attention to the politics of Italy or something. I, Did I you mean, get that I, message? I I didn't, but I, again, it was... Yeah. yeah, I I just I didn't love it. I and I wanted to like. I'd heard the stories, like you said, about Shia's conversion and him living with the Capuchins and stuff. And I yeah, thought, it sh- it could have been good. It could have yeah. been good if if uh, that. Uh, yeah. So hey, guys, if you want a good Padre Pio story, get my book. <laughs> yeah, this is a much better story, and it's it's suitable for kids and adults, and you know, and you'll you'll actually get what you want out of it. I agree. I agree absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you've written Wounds of Love, you've written Matron of Paris. We should talk about that one. Oh sometime. yeah, yeah, I would love to invite you back to come talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you plan on writing more in this series? Yeah, I have not talked with Tan about it yet, but I think the reception to these two books have been good. And I always say this to audiences, if you want more of this type of literature, then please support it, you know, mm-hmm. buy the book. Or, and tell Tan, uh, you know, that, that you enjoy it. Tell him what a difference it makes, you know. Leave good reviews on Amazon for it. If you want this sort of good literature about the saints, then support it. But yeah, the plan was to start a whole series. And we were going to do one or two volumes a year. Uh, Padre Pio and St. Genevieve were both written in one year, back to back. But then we got a little sidetracked because uh, we decided to write a book about the Blessed Virgin Mary instead. We did Padre Pio and Genevieve, and then we did another project called The Story of Mary, which is like a, a textbook, or well, I don't know if it's going to call it a textbook, but it's a, it's a children's book on everything to know about Mariology. Uh, I'd say it's for uh, probably late elementary to middle school age. It wraps up history, theology, scripture, apologetics, all about the Blessed Virgin Mary in a single book with lots of historical fiction vignettes. I spent a whole year working on that, and now I want to get back to doing these saint stories. I'm personally not through Tan, but just on my own, I'm working on a, a novel about St. Valentine uh, right now in the, in the preliminary stages of that. So I'm hoping to get back to doing some more of these saints. There's a lot of great other saints that have been canonized more recently. I'd love to do one on St. Junipero Serra. Or St. Hildegard was just made a doctor of the church by Benedict XVI. She's a wonderful saint. Oh, yeah. So there's lots of opportunity out there. And even like St. Genevieve, she's not a new saint, but her life was just so extraordinary. I just wanted to tell her story. So there's so much material out there to work with. And I just hope that, you know, God gives me more years on this earth to tell these stories. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Kruikon Hill Press. Did I say it right that time? Yeah, you did. Okay, um, and Hill Press is my own publishing company. It's uh, it's quite small, and it's very niche. I like for for and Hill Press. I like to publish books, either by myself or by other authors, or reprints of old books that are like very 
very niche things that cater to Catholics with very specific historical interests. So, for example, uh, you know, one book I published at Crew Hill Press is Hermits and Anchorites of England, which is a book entirely about medieval hermits living in England and their history. Oh, um, I think I need that. I've got one called The Tumbler of Our Lady, which is a collection of medieval French Marian miracle stories. So they're all, uh, or I have uh, Epitaphs of the Catacombs, which is like all about catacomb art. So I, I publish books that are very specified about one specific little topic, usually relating to church history, because that's my, my interest. Like I said, sometimes I write them. Sometimes I'm digging up old ones that I find. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently published a book called The Murder of Beckett, which is a 200-page book. And it was written back in the 1870s by an Anglican canon of Canterbury Cathedral. And it's 200 pages just about the murder of Beckett itself, like the, like the actual murder. So it, it goes through all the details, like here's where he was standing, then he walked here, then this guy struck him here. And it like tells the story in absolute detail. It's just a, a, play, a forum that I use to publish these little niche works that I think that attract my interest as a scholar. And if anyone wants to check the, check it out, you can go to uh, net, and I'm sure you'll put the link in your show notes, but Absolutely. I will I will spell it out for you. Kruakan is C-R-U-A-C-H-A-N, hill.net. That's a hill in Scotland that is a, that is the uh, seat of my family's clan, <laughs> so ah, okay. that's why I named it that. But go check it out. I've got a lot of like really niche stuff that might cater to you history nerds out there. Yeah, I was looking through a little bit. I didn't see the book on hermits. I'm actually writing a book on modern hermits. That oh, fantastic. That sounds cool. Non-religious hermits, for the most part. There are a couple in there. Yeah. But it's a great interest of mine, so I would definitely check that out. Oh, cool. Thank you so much, Philip Campbell. You can get your books, I'm sure, on Amazon and everywhere else people get books, and they can order them into their local bookstores as well. Yep, yep. And if you want to keep up on what I'm doing, you can visit my website at philipcampbell.net, not .com. If you go .com, you're going to get the guitarist for Motorhead. Um, <laughs> so you want to go to philipcampbell.net, or you can find me on Facebook at Philip Campbell Author Teacher. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, Sim. Check out Philip's websites at philipcampbell.net and cruaconhill.com. I've been making paracord rosaries and putting them in the Etsy shop. They're selling almost as fast as I can make them, but if they're sold out when you get there, keep checking back. I'll keep making them, or if you want to reserve one, just shoot me a message. My email is thefloweredpath at gmail.com. The Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, one word. If you type in Lost Grave at the Etsy search, they will ask you if you want to go to our store. Or you can just go to etsy.com slash shop slash lost grave. The rosaries are in the Flowered Path section of the shop. The sources for the news segment of this show can be found in the show notes for this episode at thefloweredpath.com. News writers for the Flowered Path are patrons and friends of the show, Sarah and Kevin. Please like and subscribe to The Flowered Path wherever you are listening. If you are inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. The Flowered Path is on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel there. You can find it by going to youtube.com slash at thefloweredpath6395. 
No matter where you listen, if you like what you hear, please share the episodes with your friends and on social media. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash thefloweredpath, on Instagram, at thefloweredpath, and on the web at thefloweredpath.com. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.